This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Now my hari mai kiora tanakwe Free FM 89.0 Independent Community Media Sunday afternoon. And by the end of the day, it is going to be wet, wet, wet. Because it is turning very dark outside. My washing's out, so I don't know where it'll be on the street when I go get home later, later this afternoon. And hello to Justin and his partner. I was uh, having drinks with Justin and his partner last night at my favourite bar on, on the hood. And uh, hi to you guys. So driving around at the moment. So Justin is American. One of the nice ones. <laughs> oh no, I love I love Americans. Some of them, anyway. <laughs> so, hello to Justin and his partner, and uh, anybody else. Hello to John Osborne, listening. Hopefully this afternoon too. Malcolm, my brother, and anybody else who's tuned in this Sunday afternoon at nineteen minutes to one. Time to check out some history. It's March 20, 2022. It's day 78. We've got 286 days to go before we uh, sing Jingle Bells again. 1834 this day, 188 years ago, New Zealand's first recognised flag was chosen. The Reverend Henry Williams arranged for three alternative designs to be made up. 25 Northern Maori chiefs at Waitangi voted for the flag. The flag's... um, one of the flags, the ensign of the United Tribes chosen. You saw this flag at the re- recent Wellington protest.
FM 89.0. That is the New Zealand Youth Jazz Orchestra. Andy Crummer, Peter Morgan and the late Dale Vanius. And God defend New Zealand as we celebrate today that flag with the ensign on it. The It's that day when the Reverend Henry Williams gave the Maori three choices. And you saw that uh, flag as we all know it with the ensign on it. It's a flag of protest at the moment. It's uh, four, uh, 13 minutes to one. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon, Bruce and listeners. And we'll shortly welcome our guest who's just gone to put the dog outside, you know. <laughs> it's the sort of woof, household woof. where, you know, the relationship with the people and their pets is so close. That, uh, the I'm, I'm just asking, why put the dog out? Uh, well, apparently, according to our guest, it, it could otherwise prove a problem. I pay. We we have we have all sorts of guests in this in, on this radio station. Yes. Dogs are welcome. <clears throat> Trouble with being a boy, passionate about everything to do with <clears throat> well, mechanics, trains, motorbikes. In fact, anything that moves fast, making much noise, smoke, or explosions is knowing where we slot in, in an adult world. Imagination runs rife when we're little. As boys, we think we're invincible, always up to a challenge and forever young. But there comes a time when we must measure up. Let's ask our guests, what were your ambitions as a youth? Hello. I think the dog's still. <laughs> no, no. no. The dog, the oh, we hear that the dog might be outside I'm not sure now. Whether I'm online or not. Yeah, no, no. You, you, you could, uh, could you speak up a bit, Tom? Uh, that's that's uh, that's a bit better. Hey, don't worry about the dog. If the dog starts barking, we don't worry. <laughs> ah, yes. I, well, the trouble is that I, he only understands a few words, and, <laughs> and they're not appropriate. <laughs> Hey, we we've just gave you a preview of trains. You've had you're a you're a mechanic. No, 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 no. Although I did have a motorcycle business when I was at university. Harry um, Mowbray, talking of how life, if it presented a problem, it was having too many things to do all the time. Projects on the boil. Is that how it's been all these years, Harry? Uh, you're not wrong. I think you've been talking to somebody. <laughs> oh. <clears throat> well, people notice when a person's industry results in successful business, and you've seen plenty of that, and maybe something's not so successful, we wouldn't know. People notice then when time is poured into community interests, and before you, your parents, your mother, Betty, city councillor in Hamilton for a long time, but you grew up out of town, I think. Uh, who Betty did? Or me? Or you? No, no, you. No, no, we, we grew up in Hamilton. Yeah. and um, In the city? In a, uh, just in St Andrews, yes. Barton yeah. um, Primary School. Are you the Harry Mowbray that's got a Bachelor of Science at Waikato University? That's the one, yes. I'm just looking up uh, your photo on... The old uh, digit, digital stuff here, and uh, you've got a great background, uh, Harry. And um, you yeah, know, and you've used that Bachelor of Science degree at the University of Waikato. Good. Uh, yes. Well, I, I started as an industrial chemist down at Tinley, mm -hmm. and um, after after um, university, and um, then ended up at Tinley for fifteen years. And uh, after that, we started up a um, left there and started a consulting. 
an engineering company supplying equipment into the pulp paper industry in Australia and New Zealand. And um, that business grew quite significantly. And um, it's not um, it's not as big as business as it used to be, um, as uh, other things have taken over. But um, so no, I've, I've definitely used um, that degree in uh, material sciences and engineering and what have you, and developed a number of materials that have gone worldwide. Um, so uh, it's, it's definitely been used. You've applied scientific concepts to your life, but also business, and business has proved very challenging, successful though, in the end, the effort. Yeah, well, well you know, I mean, the, we, 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 we had a farm um, down in Tokoroa that the kids grew up on, <coughs> and then came up to another farm let at Karapiro, and, um, you know, the kids uh, were involved in sort of... Um, restoring motorcycles that weren't going uh, from farmers and what have you and um, became very adept at using tools um, and I always like mentioned that my son Andrew was driving my little bulldozer when he was seven so they, they, they had a very um, broad um, education uh, not only intellectually but also with their hands and I'm um, a firm believer in, in but not only the head but the hands and really what, what the companies or what we've done very well at is engineering and um, so um, and we, we continue to do that so and uh, pretty much every business we've ever um, had or have has been started from scratch um, Zuru are now buying businesses to tack on with um, their present um, business structures but um that's really to just get uh, people to um, to just accelerate where they're going in different areas. I know in business, you and your son Andrew were took part in restoring the Martangi factory. Uh, Martangi factory. Yeah, that, so so um, that's um, one of our little projects. <laughs> um, so uh, and and we bought that uh, primarily for the toy business. Um, and so it was bought, um, and Matthew and my nephew Simon were um, were using it for uh, manufacturing the toys, um, and um, then uh, then that business went to China, um, and uh, by that stage we'd sort of sort of got really quite attached to the site, and um, we'd also started to look at the history, and became passionate about the history and actually restoring the, the site. Um, to and, and trying to work out how to utilise it so that it would um, be economic. Um, because if you don't have a building which actually has a use, uh, well, then it eventually will, um, uh, you know, it will, it will basically if, fall if, over and crumble and not be repaired and what have you. If the name Mowbray sounds familiar to people, they are the family behind Zulu Toys, which are so popular, and you see saw all the TV ads, and um, yeah, you're that family. Uh, yes, yes, actually, that, that's, um, I started that with my second son Matthew, and then uh, our youngest son um, he joined. Um, although he he sort of tagged along in the early days because that business just started with Matthew mm. when he was eleven, um, and, and it was. It was all associated with um, with uh, 
uh, balloons over Waikato. Yep. In fact, they've just happened and Zuru um, sponsors all of the uh, night glow and what have you now. And, of course, you had to face legal action from America for some of your product. Oh, no. Oh, well, yes and no. I mean, at any one particular time, there's probably, you know, uh, half a dozen um, court cases or legal um, situations going on. Um, just just that's the tour industry is very litigious. And... Um, and I think the one you're referring to, in actual fact, was um, was the one where um, an American company was copying um, the water balloons. Is that yep, what yep, that's the one. Okay, so so that wasn't we, we were uh, Azura was taking the action against an American company, and um, it, it actually um, made headlines in Forbes um, magazine as well because it was the first company to get an injunction against an American company. Um, in about 30 years, I think it was, something, something incredible like that. There must have been very good grounds for that, Harry. Oh, there were incredibly good grounds, yes, yes. I mean, it was just um, the, the American... It's interesting, you know, American law is, is very much designed for Americans and um, in, in that sort of area. Um, and uh, it's a very hard one to fight. Yeah, everybody loves in America, takes everybody to court in America. Uh, yes, but they they take everyone to court. They try and keep you out of court, <laughs> and uh, then you're paying five six hundred um, dollars an hour for your lawyer. Yep. And basically, the whole process, process is one of trying to send you broke, um, so that you actually have to have to have very deep pockets to even start over. There. Um, and then not only that, the product that you've got has got to be um, uh, be extraordinarily um, profitable because. Um, you know, it's just not worth fighting if it's not. Um, and Bunch of Balloons um, was the biggest tour in the world for four years in a row, and it's now sitting at number two or three, I think, in the world. Um, and it was the first tour in the world to win Toy of the World, so Europe, um, Asia and America in the same year. And, and I suppose you've test-driven them? Oh, yes, we test-drive them, yes, yes, yes. Test-drive <laughs> 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 to the point where one of my cell phones died flooded <laughs> <laughs> America may be the litigious society but you've had your own legal battles to fight for an idea just as you've taken over a run-down farm and built it up into something super special with all kinds of experimentation I think and organics coming into it you right. took on the Matangi Dairy Factory when it was in a state of, well, I wouldn't call it disrepair. It was worse than that of ruin, really. There were trees growing in it. Yeah, there was tre- we had two buildings of trees growing in them. One, one um, was um, significantly uh, bigger than the other two, but uh, in the building that the big tree was in it, it actually pushed its way right through the, the roof and actually blown all the iron up. Um, and uh, all the all the rafters and what have you were on, but the in the what we call the Glaxo building, which is the um, the, the central building on the site, um, uh, there were a couple of trees in there growing right up into the vents, but um, they hadn't caused any damage. But the birds were into the building, and um, the there was decayed butter boxes which um, had effectively turned into topsoil, which the, the trees were living in. No, it, it, it was, and, and not only that, there was asbestos problems, or it was just, um, just a lot of money just um, actually getting the place so that it, um, 
So on one side you have to um, spend good money, hard-earned, on remedying such obvious problems as trees growing inside a building out of control. But there was sewerage, there was water reticulation, there were power issues. All of that is really big money. But to add to this, you faced the legal expenses of having to secure the consents you needed. And that involved more court appearances, was it? Oh, well, I'm not quite sure. Um, obviously, you know, there's the, there's the physical stuff of actually just repairing things and, um, and fixing the drainage. I mean, once again, the Daxo building was, was permanently wet in the basement. Um, and uh, that was because the drainage wasn't working. Um, and, you know, so we had to camera the drains and find out where the problems were and then, um, yeah, dig them up and fix them. And uh, so, you know, those sort of problems aren't really, um, was it Was it hard dealing with councils? Because, uh, as, we, as we know, it takes a while for all these building permits to go through council. Was it hard? Yeah, look, I mean, the uh, council, um, they... <laughs> You know they've got all their rules, and um, and it's very hard for them to to actually change them or, or work with you. Um, so, but but I mean, I, I think you're referring to the mixed use zone that we've just applied for, which um, we applied for in the district plan, um, which has been um, we've, we've, it's been very successful. Um, so we've now I've now got all these um, uh, buildings from the late 1800s and early 1900s which we can now start putting around the site um, to create um, uh, a destination, a business a business hub for destination um, and the history uh, of all of the buildings and what have you. Um, basically, uh, we've, we were chasing from being an industrial site to a mixed-use zone. And the Waikato District Council had no mixed-use zone regulations, so we ended up writing those for them. Um, so yeah, it was a it was actually a protracted process, um, but um, you know now um, we get down to um, putting the building consents and and um, uh, building permits and what have you. And that you know we obviously there's a few things here we'd like to um, be able to do uh, to to move things along a bit quicker. Um, but um, yeah, it, uh, that that's all just. All driven by a, a dream, Harry. Your dream. Oh well, it, it's sort of a it's a site that really catches you, and um, it's got a really good aura um, when you drive into site. There's something about it that that, um, uh, that just makes you. Um, and, and not only that, I mean, when, when you've written the history, um, which I think you guys have probably touched on a bit here. Yeah, we've got, we've got some history coming up with a certain wartime singer. It's her birthday today. We're going to celebrate her shortly. Oh, right. Yeah. I, anyway, I mean, it's, it just has an extraordinary history in, in terms of um, New Zealand agricultural history, mm-hmm. um, going right back to 1884. Um, and then um, when Henry Reynolds won a butter competition in Melbourne, and um, he was asked what called his butter and he said, Well I'm just a farmer from from Cambridge. But I don't have a I don't have a name for my butter. But he'd been a merchant seaman and he had an anchor tattooed on his arm and he said, Well I call it anchor. And then in eighteen eighty five the Martin factory was built 
and uh, it was owned by the New Zealand Dairy Association, and they were the first factory to supply Henry Reynolds with cream yep. outside of his immediate neighbours, and, um, uh, and so it was a, yeah. So so the link goes right back to the anchor. Yeah. Uh, my, my links, I was born in Cambridge, so I know of, about that factory and also the Hautapu factory, which is, had the big brick chimney, and you could see it from all over town. And that, that, oh, right. And that uh, brick fac, um, chimney is long gone. But, yes, no, Cambridge and the greater Waikato have a history in the, in the farming industry. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and I mean, uh, Henry Reynolds was also the guy that was working for the New Zealand Land Company, um, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And he, he was in charge of draining all of the land between Hamilton and Morrinsville. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had people digging digging drains. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was, he was a pretty remarkable character. Um, and then after, after he had um, won the starter competition, he set up all these creameries around the Waikato. And... Uh, then in 1896, he sold the business to um, the New Zealand Dairy Association, which was the um, the co-op that owned Martin. So in 1896, the um, the anchor brand moved to Martin, um, and then that was also um, during that period in 1894. Um, and I think it was the New Zealand Trading Company um, built a cheese factory uh, at Martini, which is still there. Uh, and it's an unreinforced concrete building, um, and what's more, it's got no cracks in it. Uh, yeah, we, we we we're just having a siren of a fire engine go past up Collingwood Street. So, uh, yeah, no, it, it's it's past. So, um, but um, your mother, she was celebrated when we celebrated 120 years of women's suffrage, along with. Uh, our friend Margaret yeah. Evans and Catherine O'Regan and Marilyn Waring, she was celebrated along with um, those local body politicians and national MPs. Right, right. Oh, well, there you go. I never knew that. So, <laughs> when, when did that happen? That uh, round about 2013. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just I'm just looking at the Times article of the day. And um, did you think of following your mother into local politics? Oh, look, that's a funny story because Margaret Evans uh, was sitting with a friend of mine down in Chicago and they said, they, uh, they, they decided to ring me up and told me they wanted me to stand as near for Hamilton. <laughs> I said, no way. But I, but I, but I do, um, I have um, initiated a political party which we're about to launch, um, which will be on the national um, arena. Uh, and it's an agricultural party. So, um, Does it yeah. follow on from Heartland New Zealand's initiative? This, this is Heartland, yeah. Heart, Heart, Heartland's uh, is the political party I started. It, 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 we, we ran in Port Waikato last uh, election. Hmm. Were you so, pleased with the outcome of that particular election? Uh, yeah, look, I mean, there was... Uh, the, you know, it was COVID and there was uh, very little advertising and um, got eight and a half thousand votes, um, which is um, which was the biggest vote um, of any of the minor parties. You know? So um, yeah, it it it, it um, shows that the um, 
and, and, and it goes back to a process where um, you can get two MPs from two votes. Um, and um, so that message got through. Uh, and we're about to um, um, sort of relaunch um, and, um, and look at doing um, between eight and ten electorates. Um, and they'll all be rural or regional electorates. Um, it's uh, focused on farming. Um, and, and, and people that support farmers. A neglected uh, sector of our population, perhaps. Oh, uh, absolutely. You know, I mean, they, they really haven't had a voice for the last 30 years, arguably probably 40 years. Um, and, and particularly since MNP came in. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it's... it's um, yeah, but... Uh, I, I think is it because I think the last voice for farmers that 30 years ago was the late Duncan McIntyre? Right. Yeah, okay. It's going back a bit, isn't it? That is going back a bit. Um, yeah, no, because what we're, we're today as federated farmers, and usually they're there to um, support the farmers. Where is federated farmers these days? Yeah, yeah look, I... I I mean, federated farmers, um, they're there, there's no question. Um, but they, they tend to um, be politically neutral. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in the particular environment we're in at the moment, I don't think we can be politically neutral. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, you know, I mean, Plan Change 1 was just horrific for farmers, and um, particularly for organic farmers. I mean, we were about to have $3 million worth off the value or the capital value of our farm because of our very, very low nitrogen reference point, which was 19. Um, in a normal dairy farm, it's between 60 and 100. And um, so they came up with this unbelievable idea that any, this is only European farmers, incidentally, as well, um, any Maori land is allowed to carry on and increase the level of pollution. Um, they, they came up with the idea that the level of pollution that any European farm had uh, in the seasons 2016 and 2015, then that was going to be the limit for that land forever. And that the people that the worst polluters, um, with high nitrogen inputs and what have you, were allowed to come back to the 75th percentile. And then they were allowed to carry on pollution at that level for the next 80 years. And they call that a level playing field. Uh, yes, yes. So, so we, we um, I, I got involved with a group called the Primary Land User Group, um, which eventually ended up being the board of the Heartland Party, um, and those guys were um, pretty much central around Pukekohe. And um, the um, and, and we managed to push a good pushback on that. So, yep. uh, in fact, it didn't ever come in. The, 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 was that, that we had to spend thousands of hours doing it. The current Minister of Agriculture, of course, is Damien O'Connor, who's also biosecurity in rural communities. Have you got a, some time for um, Damien, o, Damien O'Connor? Um, well, well, it was Damien O'Connor that, um, that actually precipitated the um, Heartland Party because what ended up happening was that Waikato Regional Council... Um, had spent $30 million preparing their um, Stand Change 1. And um, 
the even the commissioners that sat for over 12 months on it, and there were six of them, that was $3 million. And um, this whole process was going on, and, you know, it was obviously deeply involved in intense discussion and presentations. And Damien O'Connor announced um, that none of that would be um, really recognised and that um, this is what was going to happen. And um, came up with all of the um, water regulations. uh, Is is your incoming party opposed to three waters? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) No question whatsoever. Opposed opposed in every way, shape and form. Um, It's uh, it's just nothing but a... uh, Well, it's theft on a grand scale. And um, it's not going to help anything. Um, If they want to put money into those sorts of things, then they need to be coming back and talking to the regional councils and the city councils and what have you and working out how... Because, I mean, I mean, it's all this infrastructure is what's actually holding things up and what's causing the high prices and what have you. Um, I mean, out here at Martini, uh, where we have the Martini factory and where I live, um, there is no um, sewerage out here, no, no reticulated sewerage. And um, why can't a regional council or district council don't want to put it in because um, that will uh, accelerate the um, absorption into Hamilton City? Um, so, uh, you know, these things go back, and, and, and of course, out here with Canterbury and, and, and Martin, that's one of their, probably their most profitable rate um, revenues. Uh, yeah. so the last thing they want to be doing yeah. is losing it to Hamilton City. You, you haven't been knocking at Russ Remington's door because he's the chairman. He's in your hood out, at, out on the Hamilton Cambridge Highway. Have you been right. knocking on his door? No, not at all. No, no. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I mean I, you know, I mean, I, I, there's, there's, there's elements of, uh, of, you know, modern sewage treatment systems which um, disturb me a little bit as well. And that, um, you know, all of that nutrient and biology is, um, is going into the river. Well, the biology is basically trying to stop the biology, but I mean, there's a lot of nutrient loss in that. Um, you with that there is biology going into the river because the river's swimmable upstream of Hamilton, but it's not swimmable downstream of the sewage treatment plant. Um, so um, that's um, you know, I mean, I mean, we've 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 actually got to think smarter about um, about effluent treatment, and um, and I think putting it through biology on the land is the, is the key. Um, well, that's why you're using your science degree. It's strange, Harry, to think that we're speaking of Martangi, and you point out the lack of reticulated sewerage, sewage, I should say. (laughs) That um, position is difficult to reconcile with the Martangi factory once being, it said, the largest dairy factory in the world. Yes, that's right. True. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, you've got to, you've got to remember that back then it was, um, so, so we've gone from, from, um, you know, Henry Reynolds and the New Zealand Dairy Association, um, uh, buying the Anchor brand and then the New Zealand Trading Company setting up a cheese factory on site, then, uh, that turning into a, a, a condensary, um, um, run by a guy by the name of William Murray 
good Scottish boy and he called his yes, no parliament and yes, no. And that happened in 1900. So in 1900, both the anchor brand and, and the Highlander brand were on the marketing site. Um, there was a further factory, cheese factory built, uh, which is not on, which is across the road. And then, then in 1917 um, was when um, the... Uh, the biggest dairy factory in the world was built. And it, it was precipitated by a guy, Joseph Nathan. And Joseph Nathan started his business in 1873 in the lower North Island. I'm not quite sure what he was doing then, but um, in the late 1880s and, and 1890s, he made a fortune out of sending frozen milk and frozen butter back to the UK. And then in the early 1900s, he wanted to do dried milk. And so he went to Europe and came back with a dryer. Well, it did me. I, I mean, someone went to Europe and came back with a dryer. And um, they, and it didn't work. And uh, they, they modified it and put a patent on the process and they called it Laxo. They called it dried milk Laxo. And then they decided that Laxo and laxative and food wasn't a good idea. And so they changed the name to Laxo. So Laxo Smith Klein, the GSK is now called, the Laxo part of that um, is, is um, and, and GSK is, is one of the very biggest uh, pharmaceutical companies in the world. Um, the Daxo part started in Palmerston North, um, or probably more correctly in Bunnyport, uh, where we opened his first milk factory. I may have had some of their product when I was a baby, so... Um... Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely would have. You know, are you Bonnie? Well, people, people, people pro- probably, probably people say no, but uh, that's a, that's another life con. But I, I look at the anchor brand these days; it's it's owned, of course, by um, Fonterra. So, your thoughts on Fonterra these days? They've been through a lot of trouble in the past decade. So, what do you think of Fonterra these days? Yeah, well, well, uh, perhaps let me just carry on. Yep, yep. With that go, go for story it. Before, because because what ended up happening was that. Um, uh, um, Joseph Nathan was paying a penny a pound of butter fat more than all the local co-ops around Armstrong North. And so the farmers were leaving and supplying him. And of course, that was making all the farmers go broke. And, uh, and also the co-ops that remained with, with the, um, the farmers that remained with the co-ops, they were going broke as well. So they burnt his factory down. And then he rebuilt it again and they burnt it down again. And then he came up to Waihau and put a dryer in there. Um, incidentally, he did go back and build, rebuild the bunny factory, factory and, and carried on drying milk for seven years. But anyway, in the interim, he came up um, to the Waikato because that was where most of the dairy operation was. And he put this dryer in the White House and then realised he needed to talk to the New Zealand Dairy Association who owned the marketing site because they were the biggest co-op in New Zealand. And he said, you build me the factory, I'll put the machinery in, and we'll go into business together, and I'll pay you a penny a pound of butter fat more. So they built the biggest dairy factory in the world, and that's the, fact, the, the building that's on site, in the centre of site, and we call it the Glaxo building. And, but you were, you were talking about it um, being the biggest dairy factory in the world. But when you, when you understand that in 1917, or 1916, or whatever they decided to start building it, um, the three quarters of the vehicles on the road in the world were Model T Fords. And so up until that time, there was no way that anybody could build a factory uh, that was large because you just couldn't get 
couldn't get the milk to it. So, um, so, so the, the martini factory was designed around 25,000 gallons of milk a day. And uh, anyway, halfway through production of that, of, of the building of the building, they realised they didn't have enough, um, enough milk. So they went around all the other co-ops in Waikato and said, come and join us, and they formed the NZ Co-op Dairy Company. So the NZ Co-op Dairy Company came directly out of Martin. And then, of course, um, the NZ Co-op Dairy Company um, was the primary um, league of uh, Fonterra. So, um, yeah, so, so Fonterra, so Glaxo and Fonterra, the two biggest companies to ever come out of New Zealand, have their primary financial route on this building at Martin, which is pretty extraordinary, really. So then that brings you to Fonterra. <laughs> and there's little doubt that, that, that Fonterra has lost their way um, for a while. But I can tell you, under Miles Harrell at the moment, they are doing an extraordinary job. Um, it is yeah. really good to see Kiwis coming back and actually having a Kiwi running a Kiwi company and doing a really, really good job of it. Yeah, their, for, their former chairman, he was on a salary, was it rumoured $10 million or something? Oh, look, I mean, and, and yeah, yeah don't, don't even go there. I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> Fair enough. Hey, no. Let's move on to yeah, be, better things. Yeah. So you've ended well, up, Harry, with a six-storey yeah. spray dryer tower for which there's no apparent uh, practical use? Right. Yeah. You've been spying, haven't you? <laughs> it's incredible <laughs> that you, you would look upon something as, well... I don't know what you conceived first, because in the state of repair that you've uh, described it, uh, the building was derelict, and it could be ideal for perhaps a horror film <laughs> as, a, as a venue. But beyond that, the average person would think it was a write-off, and that would have been... Yeah, well, the, the, the spray tower, the Glaxo building's not a spray tower because they use roller drives. The, the spray tower came a lot lighter in, in the life of the site. Um, so um, that, that was uh, built in 1967. So there was an evaporator set put in, in 19, a new evaporator set put in in 1965, and then the spray dryer was put in in 1967. Um, and at that stage, um, the, the offices along the bottom of that spray dryer and the back were the head office of the Carberry Company. And also the laboratory, and in that laboratory, they did the process of making case notes. And uh, then Rekker and Pilata were built based on that technology. So, um, yeah, the spray dryer is just another one of the buildings that, that um, needs to be looked at, and um, so we've drawn up some drawings on that, with six floors through it, um, and three floors through the abacid. Um, and um, then that would be turned into offices and shops and things like that. Um, just, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of engineering work before we can get to that stage. Uh, so we've drawn up concept drawings for it, but um, uh, whether in actual fact that we'll be able to come to fruition is, is another story. Because um, it will depend a lot on, um, on new earthquake codes and um, engineering and um, also being able to um, actually detail out what the foundations are exactly in that building. Because all the earthquake specs are based on foundation structure or foundational calculations. Um, and if you don't have them, it gets a little bit more complicated. So, the catch cry. More, I'm being facetious there. 
the catch cry for agriculture was diversify, and obediently farmers did. In fact, I think the forest that perhaps you still have an interest in is an example of that. However, it has its limits, and we saw that the idea of promoting tourism in such a grand way as New Zealand was doing, it comes apart in a time of a pandemic, and we fall back on what we produce, the primary produce. It's difficult to get things to market, but somehow we manage. Have we lost the momentum since the days of Ruakura in the scientific front that led the world? You can answer that with a yes. Um, the you know it, it's uh, the, 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 there's a lot of politics is entering, entering science, and um, and so does um, um, big pharma and, and people that um, you know. And, and you've got to start looking at following the money, honey, you know? um, and you know. Like, I mean, I know. Um, in terms of science at the moment, um, there's areas that scientists aren't allowed opinions on um, because um, it will uh, effectively um, reduce their uh, their opportunities for actually doing finance. Um, so, look, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, definitely, Eurocur is not what it used to be, um, and um, yeah, I. I yeah, um, Harry, have you also been following the latest uh, report on supermarkets, like the countdowns of the world and the, and the new worlds, and there's two major companies, and how, I don't know if you go shopping, but have you noticed how high some of the vegetable prices are in the supermarkets these days? I, I just bypass the vegetable market in, in the supermarket these days, they're, they're just too high. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a little bit surprised that um, you know, cabbage was six dollars yesterday. <laughs> so um, that seems like quite a bit of money for a cabbage. Um, and and little small heads of broccoli were um, nearly four dollars. You know, so um, yeah, I I, I I I have noticed that um, prices are on the higher side. Yeah, and uh, some of the shelves are empty too. Yeah, I can't say I've noticed that too much, um, um, but uh, certainly there's, um, yeah, look, I mean, I mean we, 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 I mean, we keep running a nanostate, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, we keep on thinking that um, central thinking is, is, is better than the individual, and the individuals will yeah. always come up with their answers. It's been an interesting couple of years with COVID, of course, and it was on this radio station that MP David Bennett announced people to go out and buy toilet paper. He became infamous for that comment. Right, right. Yeah. Why did he? Why did he say that? I can't, I, 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 mean, I, 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 can't, I, I, I can't even understand the logic. <laughs> That's yeah. You'll have to ask Mr. Bennett himself about that one. One sector that showed promise was one that you quickly were convinced about, perhaps because you could understand the science better than most, it was the organised dairy hub. Organic dairy hub. Right, the organic, organic dairy hub, yeah, and, and we were involved with that, 
and, and it's and it's very very unfortunate we have to leave it um, because I think it's an absolutely um, the right thing to do. But oh, gee, I, I don't know if I really want to go into it because um, uh, they would not let me get involved in trying to make things happen. Um, and there were um, and you know, I was happy to do that for free. But that might prove a missed opportunity. Because um, you explore things fairly thoroughly, you research it beforehand, and that results in some of the surprising projects you bid for. For instance, there was the... You don't like to see things go to waste, do you, Harry? St. Paul's Church stood there in London oh, Street for so long. What have you been digging up? You've been looking all... You've been looking under the carpet. <laughs> we you guys... You guys, you guys didn't tell me you were going to go down all these sorts of trees. Yeah, no, no, because we, we, we remember the uh, the issues moving that church from its uh, from its London Street property, which is, I think, now a car park. And, um, yeah, we know, we, we like we like digging, both of us, but, yeah, there was issues around the church because they were, they were going to demolish it. Oh, yeah, yeah, and so, so you know, I mean, that, was, that church was designed by Frederick Daniel and, um, or Daniel and Craig, as they were not. Um, and pretty Daniel has iconic status in New Zealand architecture. Um, he designed the Martini Blair factory, the Glaxo building, and also the Seven Sisters, and also the Bryant Homestead out, um, out, out um, at Martini, mm-hmm. and also the, um, the on the corner of St. Harrow Street and River Road, the Presbyterian Church there, and also um, Western Chambers, which is now... I hope on Collingwood Street, right next door to you guys, presumably, if you're in Collingwood Street. Yep, we're at the top of Collingwood Street. Uh, we'll have a look at that uh, particular property. But okay, we, we... So Wesley Chambers down the bottom. Yep. So, so um, I, I mean, so Frederick Daniel was absolutely integral with, um, uh, you know, Martangi. Um, and um, so I wanted to ship the church out to Martangi um, and, and save it. I mean, it was just. The, the timbers in that church were absolutely extraordinary. Um, underneath the church, they were they were just huge. Like I mean, they must have been I don't know about 400 millimeters deep and about 150 millimeters wide, and they were the full length of that church. What sort of tree they came out of, I have no idea. But they were they were it was just it was just extraordinary. And um, anyway, uh, it was going to cost 120 thousand dollars to shift it. And that was okay. Um, but then, um, well, wouldn't we bring it under the high tension power lines? Uh, and so I had to take the roof off if I was going to shift it. Um, and that was going to make it $350,000 to shift it. And that just put it out of question. Um, I have no idea why they wouldn't just accommodate that whole situation, but they wouldn't. Um, and it did clear the lines. Quite a, sense, uh, quite a a reasonable distance, and you know if you're doing it at one o'clock in the morning, um, shifting the the main the main power line supply um, off one set of lines onto another um, in the middle of the night, it's, it's not really a big problem. They've done it before. So it's there out at Mountangi right now. No, no, it's at the Kofi. Um, so. Um, because uh, I, I couldn't justify shifting it with that sort of cost. Um, 
and uh, so uh, but but um, so what I did at that point in time though when I was trying to save it was I wrote the history for it um, and um, presented that to the city council because I I thought the city council should just shift it down to Seton Park and put it in amongst the trees it was only you know, a couple of hundred metres down the road and turn it into a badminton um, court um, down there with the squash where the squash courts and the tennis courts are. and um, that would have preserved it it would have uh, been a, you know that, um, an incredible if, if, that, you know, if I couldn't get it out to Martin then that's what I was trying to get them to do but, no, that didn't work either well, you do the research and you have so many projects, you know they won't all come to fruition, but you're ready with the ideas. You're an ideas man, but also action. But how did you justify going down as far as Napier to obtain buildings, which most would think past their use-by date, but there they sit, awaiting their new lease on life at Matangi. What will you do right. with those railway buildings, the railway type well, they're design? Not, they're, not railway, they're not railway buildings. There's only one of them that's a railway cottage that um, can be confirmed. Um, so the rest of them are just um, classic, uh, classical sort of little um, single bed or, or two bed um, cottages from New Zealand. And um, so, you know, what, what, what we've been doing at Marketing is I've been collecting buildings for, for creating this. Um, historic destination um, and I want it to be active I want it to be alive, I want it to be a business um, hub um, so um, I was looking for little one bed cottages like that and I've been looking for oh, uh, since this concept came up which is probably about 10 or 12 years ago and um, anyway um, the they just don't they just don't exist and besides you never get to find them before they get bulldozed mm-hmm. and and nobody wants them because they're so tiny and um, um, so but i wanted them for um for airbnb uh, so the plan is to um uh, keep them so they look absolutely um, classical on the outside uh, are any of them art deco because hastings and napier no, no 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 that these go right so the earthquake was 1931 yep. or 32 or something like that, somewhere in there. And then the, um, these buildings are 1860 to 1880. Which, um, which is good. Hey, you, you're trying to save our history in the, in the greater Waikato, and um, sadly Hamilton has lost a lot of its uh, old buildings. Uh, I look down the oh, street sometimes, and there's buildings there over 100 years old, and the council wants to take them down to fit in with the new proposed theatre on Victoria Street. Right, right, right. And they don't even they don't even know why they're closing down to us when you really get down to it. Oh, you you've been talking to Margaret Evans. Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, it, I mean, it, it's rather interesting. I, I did actually sort of know that earlier, um, but Margaret did reinforce it just recently. And she was trying to convince me to um, <laughs> make a political role. <laughs> like Margaret does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, mm. so um, look, I mean, you know, the, we were actually talking a whole lot of nonsense here um, with regards to um, earthquake um, and, and the money that, that is going into it. So, I mean, 
and, 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 and the same goes for COVID as well. If, if, we, if we do a risk analysis, and, and the only risk analysis that people do on a daily basis is about driving a car. And so if you, if you compare the risk analysis of actually dying in a building in the Waikato um, and uh, dying in a car crash, um, you, you know, we're, we're, we're talking billions to one difference in odds. Okay, I mean, it's, it's, there's never been a building actually even cracked in the Waikato with an earthquake, yep. let alone, that's why, I was, that's why I was referring to this blooming unreinforced concrete building, which is one of the Are you are you blaming Dr. Ashley Bloomfield? I'm, I'm, I think it's bigger than him. I think it goes further than that. It's, it's um, uh, you know, I mean, we've got we've got Justin Trudeau um, pulling all those strings and the common. There's some pretty I mean, strange things going on in this world at the moment, and uh, the um, the totalitarian type control. You, you, you sound. If you could, you, you would have been at the Wellington protests outside Parliament. 
Oh, absolutely. I supported them 100%. You know, those people there, they, they had had their lives completely destroyed, some of those people. I'll, t- I'll tell you something. After I had the, I, I had a $300,000 job further in Australia, and so I couldn't, I couldn't go without having um, uh, an injection, you know? And um, so I went and had it um, and then got heart problems. And so I've got a treadmill test on Tuesday um, and um, uh, to try and work out what things gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you can never sit here and say, as a scientist, and say, look, I'm absolutely know that this was the jab, because you can't say that. But um, the fact of the matter is that, that, that the problems have happened since then. You, you, you support the, what, what they did, but you don't support the hotheads who in the final days just took over and you, you saw what happened on television. Yeah, 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 yeah but I mean, then, then were you getting the correct reports? I mean, I mean the, the barbecue that got knocked over was knocked over by the police and their action, and that set the fire going. And then, yeah, okay, and then you get into a situation like that and people start chucking things on the fire. Um, so, you know, but... They choose to forget the bit in the beginning that actually that the fire how the fire started, um, and um, so you know, like I mean, you need to go back and actually yeah. make sure you've got the information, the correct information in the beginning. Harry, are you still to be seen driving a Mark II Jaguar? <laughs> oh dearie me! You really have done some uh, homework here. No, well, no, the Jaguar was a university uh, car. Hey, bl- hey, blame stuff because we're going off what's in the in the stuff newspaper article. So um, a Mark II Jaguar. Oh, I've got a Mark IV Jaguar, but no, the Mark II. I had a Mark II when I was at university because I sort of done reasonably well as a student with motorcycle repairs and trading and motorbikes and what have you. Yeah. You started young. Hey, Harry, it's, it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. We've got to move on. It's 20 to 2. I've got the latest COVID um, update to come, which is uh, sounding pretty good. So, Harry, we'll have to know. And uh, all the best to your children and, the, and their enterprises around the world. Oh, look, I mean, the, the, uh, they, it's just extraordinary what they've done. You Absolutely could perhaps... Perhaps convey our thanks to your dog for being so patient. <laughs> I'd be oh, waiting yeah, for you. Yeah. You better go and rescue your dog, Harry. Thanks for your time this afternoon on Sunday. Okay, it's, it's, it's a pleasure. Good night. Uh, what, what, hey, what, what, a, what a great man and a great family. Well, you've been probably waiting for this. The Ministry of Health has announced 12,020 new community cases of COVID-19 and nine deaths today. The numbers are well down on the 18,500 reported yesterday. This was due to cases steadily declining in Auckland, along with case numbers generally being lower over the weekend due to a low level of testing. So the new cases in Waikato, uh, the new community cases, Waikato has 1,729 and Auckland has 4,346. Um, yeah, so it sounds good, Mel. 12,020 today reported through the Ministry of Health. It's yes, we don't know, but perhaps we're through it, past its peak. We've got to celebrate this lady's birthday today, Dame Vera Lynn. She was born this day in 1917. She died on June 18, 2020, at the age of 103. Mm-hmm.
FM 89.0, independent community media, that is Dame Verilin, the late Dame Verilin, land of hope and glory. Powerful words there, Mel. Yes, they are. Never forgotten those strident days at the end of so much misery. We welcome Nicholas Walsh, Frankton Festival co-director. Among the three organisations that pooled their resources, Never Projects, Waikato Environment Centre, Go Echo, and Frankton Markets. Go Echo being formerly the Waikato Environment Centre. It takes a lot of coordination to get people acting together. How did you do it, Nicholas? Uh, um, well, yeah, we had a we had a few people working on it, um, but it was uh, very much a movable feast, especially with uh, the impact of. COVID-19 and, and the move into traffic light red and having to meet all the event restrictions around that. Um, so originally we had planned for it to be more of a traditional sort of art festival with with bands and a lot going out on the street, but um, a little difficult to do that in traffic light red. So 
So it was in some ways a response to what happened that was beyond your control, that being the cancellation of the Hamilton Gardens Arts Festival. Yeah, yeah, so that's... I work on the Hamilton Gardens Arts Festival as well. Um, well the, there's not too much of a connection between this and... between Frankton Festival and the, and the Hamilton Gardens Arts Festival, but having to cancel the, the Arts Festival did um, make me think that, you know, it would be good to to go ahead with Franklin Festival, um, no matter what, and to sort of work around the restrictions that are in place around the venue. What's been the response? The response has been great, yeah. Um, we we opened with uh, Becoming Frankton, which is an exhibition looking at the history of Frankton, and that was on Friday evening. And, yeah, we had a good turnout and a lot of uh, really positive interactions, um, people looking at the, the old photographs and telling us stories about back in the day and, and a lot of people from, from the community and from, from the neighbourhood on Commerce Street um, coming along and um, yeah, it, it was really really nice to to have those sorts of interactions with, with people. Of course Frankton was a railway community, still is a bit but uh, Frankton has changed a lot, we've got a brand new complex opening up shortly on the old Forlong site, so yep, the changing face of a Hamilton suburb. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is. It has seen a lot of change in um, learning about the history of Frankton. You know, it seems to have been a place that's always had a lot of change, and I can see that um, with with Tahuia coming in and with the new apartment complex, like you mentioned, um, I think we'll see um, Frankton developing even more and, and becoming probably a little busier in the coming years. And do the sale, um, yeah. do, is the old uh, sales still going on of the old Frankton um, sale yards? I believe so, yeah. You've made your mark in Frankton with the gallery that you co-direct. Is this form of art that you exhibit examples of capturing the attention of a receptive clientele? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think it's interesting with this exhibition because usually we, usually the the art that we exhibit at Never Project Space is more centred around contemporary artists, um, whereas this, this exhibition is the first sort of historical exhibition we've, we've, we've done. So it's cool, like on, on Friday evening we had like a lot of the younger regular crowd coming through um, and then also I think this has also brought a new crowd to, to Never which is really cool um, and you know we have older people that are interested to look at the, the old photographs and sort of reminisce on what Franklin was like um, back in the day so yeah I, I think if anything this exhibition has brought a bit of a new crowd to Never and a new crowd to and probably at, by the same token hopefully um some new younger people coming along to the Frankton Markets on Saturday, which is cool. So it's a bit of a, a crossover of audiences. T- t- tell us about Brandon de la Cruz. Uh, Brandon de la Cruz is a good friend, and he has a studio. Uh, he, he rents a recording studio up at Never, so we have five studio spaces that we rent out to artists. Um, Brandon he ended up... He is from California. He's a folk singer, um, and he ended up in New Zealand... Um, quite accidentally um, was just on holiday during the first one of the first COVID lockdowns and ended up more or less stuck here 
um, and he he decided that he wants to to stay here, which is great for all of us. Um, so now he's he's very much settled in to Hamilton, and then he's been a, a big part. Well, of point point him our way. We'll 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 have a chat to him. Yeah, great. And with the photographs, not so common to find in your studios the uh, photographic aspect of but, yeah. but there it is and it's being curated by someone you know yes it's being curated by Hester Rowan um, I'll pass you on to her now Thanks. Kia ora. Kia ora, Hester it's uh, a case of your expertise helping to project becoming Frankton Festival and recalling the history of of the suburb, or should we say the the entity that Frankton formed separate from Hamilton in its earlier days. How's it worked out? Well, I got involved with Never Project Space um, last year. I'd recently returned from um, living in Amsterdam um, and I started volunteering at Never. Um, and I've got a background in curation um, I work as a curator at the Wallace Gallery in Morrinsville and so when the idea came up for a um, Frankton exhibition I was really keen to get involved and to curate it. Um, I'd never spent that much time in Frankton before I started volunteering at Never but I very quickly became very fond of the area um, and also, once I started looking into the history and found out that it was so varied, that there'd been a tornado, it had the most popular train station in Aotearoa, I was just really excited to um, dig more into the history and to show people just how rich the history of Frankton is. And um, you've been uh, given praise. I'm just reading parts of my mate Mike Mather's um, story in the Waikato Times here, that You've, it's been likened by Wintech School of Media Arts tutor Joe Citizen to um, a place in San Francisco. Well, that's very high praise. That's very exciting. I'm, yeah, only, I'm, I'm only reading Mike's story on this, so... Um, <laughs> I do think that there's a lot of um, very exciting, creative things going on in Frankton. So, yeah, well, it's an honour to be... Um, Compared to <laughs> compared to such a vibrant suburb, I, I I get into Frankton every once in a while and go go and have a meal there at uh, one of the cafes there. The old fish and chip shop has been there for how many years? And it's still thriving. And uh, yeah, cafes and the old post office. I know Kelly Pike, who's associated with it also. She used to work here at Free FM. So a lot of people I know have a lot of time and work in Frankton. When you look at those yeah. black and white photos, it's uh, it's sort of moved away from that in modern world and left the black and white largely to the past. Do they look sort of dated? And if they are, perhaps that's what we expect if we're looking at historic photos. Yes, well, definitely... Um a lot of them do look very dated, but that's really the charm of them. It's looking at these photos that do look very old and seeing familiar landmarks, seeing, oh, I think that might be, that old dirt road might be Lake Road. And, and um, 
yeah, drawing connections between the past and today and looking at old Commerce Street and sort of figuring out which buildings are still the same. Yeah, no, I made a suggestion about, must be nearly 20 years ago, to a former Hamlin City Council that Frankton needed uh, a coat of paint. And he, this former city councillor tore strips off me. He was very upset in my comments. But, um, yeah, the last time I was in Frankton having a meal with my brother, it, um, it, 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 it's starting to look good again. Well, the um, clean-ups that have been part of the Frankton Festival this week have definitely um, spruced the place up a bit. Um the the old clock and the sign have had a clean and they're looking all shiny again. So yeah, it's um it's nice to it's nice to make the Commerce Street look a bit fresh and um the apart the new apartment buildings have also brought a bit of um newness to the area as well. How do we get to see the exhibition, Esther? The exhibition is on until um the 9th of April um, Never Project Space is open from Thursday to Saturday um, 10 till 4 during the week and 10 till 2 on Saturdays Hey, very good, hey, it's been a pleasure talking to you and give our best to Kelly Pike when you see her from Bruce and Mel here at Free FM Will do, thank you very much, it's it, been a pleasure it's, it's a pleasure, it is 4 minutes to 2 o'clock and right now it's Trevor's talk. How are you, Trevor? Not too bad, yeah. I was listening. To, I just want to make a comment before I talk about what I'm going to talk about today, about that chap talking about earthquake uh, buildings and that in Hamilton. Our friend Harry. Yeah, I think what it is, the whole country's tarred with the same brush as Christchurch and Napier and all those sort of places that do have serious fault lines underneath yep. the city. And it's pretty bad when they brand every city the same because Hamilton, as you said, has never been damaged by earthquakes. Well, I think that was the excuse taking the escalator out of um, the, the library. Yeah, I mean, uh, they've gone to uh, terrible extremes. Uh, we had a major fault line underneath us in Hamilton. I could understand that. Anyway. Anyway, onto the subject I've come here to talk about. Uh, it's about an sick elderly lady who owned a cat named Missy. Yes. It was in the Hamilton Press last week that uh, Dwayne kindly gave to me. And uh, it was handed over to the Paws for Life because uh, she's going into a home. Two I... days later, the circumstances changed. They tried to get it back and they wouldn't give it back. And about a month or so later, they, they adopted it out. Now, uh, that's probably within the law because they signed it yes. over but I think really if you're really attached to a pet and circumstances unbeknown to you have taken place where you can keep the pet I think there should be an allowance for that mm -hmm. uh, even if they may have to pay for their, get their cat back it was since adopted out two months later and they won't reveal who's got it so it could be anywhere in the country they owned the cat for about 10 years and was very attached to it because I've had a pet cat myself, yes. and I got very so, attached so to it. Yeah. Yeah, you get attached to your pets, and uh, especially if you're living alone like she is, that would have been a lot of companionship for her. Anyway, we can't say any more because we've got, we've got to go. It's yeah, so two I'm, minutes to two. And it's, uh, <laughs>
It's afternoon tea time, so enjoy the rest of your day. And we're thinking of the people in the Ukraine today. It's two to two. We'll leave you with Boney M. Rasputin. Just think of the P-U-T-I-N at the end of the song. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.